Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Ah, yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right. Sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Thermador at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build. Nick Cage is in a Superman costume. It's not for Halloween, and it's not just because he feels like it. It's because in 1997, Cage is set to star in Superman Lives, the first new live-action Superman movie in 10 years. It's taken Warner Brothers, which owns DC Comics, that long to find the right pairing of star and director to bring one of their most valuable assets back to the screen. Cage will star as the Man of Steel. Tim Burton, who ushered in the modern era of comic book movies in 1989 with Batman, will direct. Their Superman will be a bit of an outcast, an alien from another planet who doesn't quite fit in here. And everyone believes Cage is perfect for the role. Cage looks great in the suit. It's crafted from rubber, like Michael Keaton's Batman costume, to give more muscle definition to his already trim physique. His hair is long and dyed black, reminiscent of Superman's mullet when he came back from the dead in the comics back in 1994. In one version of the suit, LED lights make it light up like a screen at a rave. Cage looks in the mirror and seems satisfied with what he sees. He's always had an affinity for Superman, for someone who tried to conduct himself with dignity and tried to act with a moral compass. He just spent $150,000 on Action Comics number 1, and it's easy to think he did it in part to feel a connection with the mythology. Cage has often spoken about having talisman, physical objects that can help him get a better feel for a role. 
What could get him in tune with playing Superman more than possessing the cultural artifact of where it all began? In fact, he bought two copies, the one in terrific condition that was stolen, and a second one that wasn't quite as well preserved. Some collectors call this an undercopy. It's sort of like settling for the comic you want in an average condition until the Holy Grail comes along. The undercopy is the one Cage sold off in his massive public auction in 2002. Here's William Hughes, who brokered the sale. I thought that one was a restored copy, so it might have just been one that he had all along, and then he upgraded when he had the opportunity to get the nice high-grade copy. That's a frequent occurrence in the hobby, where, you know, the higher-end buyers, they have a lesser copy, and then they upgrade when the uh, opportunity arises. But there are bumpy times ahead. For one thing, Cage's stand-in, a man named Marco Kairos, didn't have as much luck donning the iconic suit as Cage did. I went in for a costume fitting. Unfortunately, at that point, I had gained a lot of weight, probably 25 pounds heavier than Nick, and I was kind of bloated looking. This is, I think, during face-off around that time. And I went in for a, a fitting, and the costumer just stared at me and said, are you like Alec Baldwin's stand-in? That's Marco. I said, no, I'm Nick Cage's stand-in. And he's like, oh, how'd you get that job? It's like, you're really overweight. I said, yeah, I know. At the time, you could say these things. And I said, yeah, I know, I've, I've been gaining a lot of weight on the film set. That's when the costume designer had to get creative. The funny part was they had to roll it up. The rubber had to be rolled up over my fat and then zip me up. So everything was kind of like squished inside. It was so embarrassing. I was so out of shape and I was so unlikely to be Superman Stanton. It would be a, a joke. It would be It would be a farce. A farce is not a bad way to describe Cage's Superman movie project. The movie would soon fall by the wayside, and Cage's best version of that comic, which was procured to celebrate and fuel that role, would be stolen. But you know all that. What you may not know is this wouldn't be the only time Nicolas Cage and Superman would be the subjects of a single feature film. But instead of Cage playing Superman, someone would be playing Cage. Several actors, actually, including a woman. And the movie wouldn't be about Superman, but about the theft of Cage's copy of Action Number no. One, a wholly fictional, very meta version of the story that was written by two superstar Hollywood writers, filmed, edited, and never released. No one's ever seen it. Even its director couldn't get a copy. The only thing more mysterious than the fate of Cage's action number one is the fate of the movie about Cage's action number one. Like that famous comic, it disappeared without a trace. Today, we're going to find out why. For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 5, Now a Major Motion Picture. The war that comes to me is like it was a trip, you know, to play someone named Nick Cage and two versions of someone named Nick Cage. 
it, it was terrifying. I mean, I have to say that I was actually very nervous to go towards this, but I believe that if, if you're afraid of something, if as long as it doesn't hurt you or anybody else, you should go towards it and you might learn something. You've probably heard of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It's a film that was released earlier this year and starred Nicolas Cage as Nicolas Cage. The movie version of Cage is at a crossroads in his career, much like the real Cage, who fell off the Hollywood A-list about a decade ago and has been working steadily in lower-budgeted fare. The unbearable weight of massive talent, which, as fans of the whole brevity thing, will call massive talent, sees a fictionalized version of Cage having that same experience. He's having an existential crisis and agrees to perform for a drug dealer at the dealer's birthday party. Chaos ensues, and so does a lot of tongue-in-cheek commentary on Cage's career. He not only plays himself, but versions of himself at different times in his life. Face-off era Cage. Wild at heart era Cage. The movie allowed Cage to seize control of his story back from snarky internet commenters who are very preoccupied with his grandiose acting choices and some of his B-movie roles. Critics liked Massive Talent. It was, quote, smart, funny, and wildly creative, according to one review. But it wasn't the first time Cage had been approached to play himself in a movie. The initial pitch was, we knew this thing had happened where this copy of Action Comics number one went missing from Cage's house. And like, that was the starting premise. And then the approach to it was like, well, what if it was this sort of Ocean's Eleven style heist by these sort of like friends who all hang around a comic book shop where they find out he's got it and they consider themselves Ocean's Eleven and they're going to break in and they're going to get it and sell it and get rich off of it. And they're all idiots. That's Alex Fernie. Alex is a director, primarily of television comedies like Key and Peele and Comedy Bang Bang. A few years ago, a script landed on his desk. It was titled Action Number One, and it was another meta Cage story. But this one was about one very specific incident in Cage's life, the theft of that rare comic from his home. And then the approach to Cage was obviously a very heightened version of him, where he becomes this sort of like bad guy antagonist who's trying to track them down and hires a hitman to kill them because they stole his most beloved belonging. So it really takes that first actual thing that happened, which if memory serves, it was by and large he had a party and the next day it was just gone, but he didn't know how long it had been missing and turned it into this sort of heisty thing where he's the... Andy Garcia from Ocean's Eleven. The script was written by Thomas Lennon and Robert Ben Garant, a screenwriting team responsible for some major hits like the Night at the Museum franchise with Ben Stiller. You've probably seen them, too. In addition to being co-creators with Carrie Kenny Silver, Lennon and Garant were actors on Reno 911, the cult hit on Comedy Central about inept Nevada cops. Lennon played Lieutenant Jim Dangle, Garant was Deputy Travis Jr. When the two heard about Cage's comic book heist, their story antenna went off. A famous actor suffering an art theft, only it was a rare comic. And not just any actor, but Nicolas Cage, a vowed Superman fan and someone once slated to play him. That was a movie premise. 
So Lennon and Garant concocted a fictionalized version of the story. They didn't need to adhere to facts. Instead, they tell you who the thieves are right out the gate. The script is from their point of view. It's a group of comic book collectors who get wind of Cage's priceless comic collection and the easy access to action number one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the second Ben and Tom mentioned to me, I was like, I absolutely know that story because it is so nuts. And I feel like around that same time when people were like passing around the test footage of him as Superman and stuff, that was all a lot of discussion of him and his comic books and stuff would come up. And then this story was like so perfectly right down the middle of that perception of him that I very much remember it. I think part of what makes it so interesting beyond sort of the meme-ness of Nick Cage is that I think Cage is a incredibly sincere person in a time when that is kind of rare. He likes his things. He likes his weird crypts. He likes his comic books. That's who he is and that's what he likes. That feels more relatable than if it was like, oh, someone stole a $200,000 car from Matt Damon. That wouldn't be interesting. But this is because it's so specific, both the man and his interests, that it just feels like another world, right? Like, it feels like fiction. It's not quite Ocean's Eleven. The thieves are inept and kind of bumbling. The cage of the movie is, well, he's even more bombastic than the parodies of Cage floating around out there. He hires a hitwoman to find and assassinate his comic thieves while the team tries to ransom the book back to Cage. Lennon and Garant were working on the project as far back as 2012. At the time, they hoped Nicolas Cage would agree to play himself, a very exaggerated, very murdery version of himself. And Cage thought about it. He danced around the project wondering if parodying his out-there persona was a good idea or not. When I came on board, basically they had spent a while chasing Cage, trying to get him to do it, and he was thinking about it and kind of like going back and forth. This really isn't as ludicrous as it may sound. A while back, there was a script floating around titled Chad Schmidt about a struggling actor who bears an uncanny resemblance to Brad Pitt. Chad is forced to watch as his doppelganger, who is portrayed as a buffoon, trips into fame, while poor Chad is relegated to never was status. Brad Pitt was interested in playing Chad Schmidt as well as the script's doofus version of himself, but when they couldn't settle on a director, it fell by the wayside. Still, being John Malkovich, playing yourself can work, but not for Cage. After circling action number one, he decided he didn't want to play an exaggerated version. For a minute, there was talk of Jason Statham being involved. Whether he was going to play Cage or one of the thieves was unclear, but that also wound up not happening. That left the production with no choice but to get inventive. By this point, it was under the banner of Awesomeness Entertainment, a production company that since had phenomenal success with the Netflix franchise To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Awesomeness recruited Fernie to direct the script. All they needed to do was cast someone to be Nicolas Cage. But that's not easy to do. So I rewrote it with my writing partners a little bit, and then it kind of came on at that point to direct it and to kind of figure out, well, what are we going to do about the fact that this movie about Nick Cage isn't going to have Nick Cage in it? 
So if Cage didn't want to be Cage and no other actor could step into his shoes, the filmmakers had to devise another solution. And it would be an audacious one. There had been all this talk about like, should we just never see Cage? Should it be like a Charlie's Angels thing where he's only ever a voice on a thing and you only see him from behind and stuff? And I didn't want to do that at all because that felt to me like a, a cheat. Or like that felt like that would be obvious that we couldn't do the thing that we wanted to do, which was have Nick Cage. And so then I was like, well, if it's weirder and if it's purposeful and we see these scenes where Nick Cage does show up, but it's always a different actor, that's something we can kind of lean into. The responsibility of playing Cage wouldn't fall on one person's shoulders. Four of them could share the unbearable weight. It was also a decision that broadcast the film's intentions. This wasn't going to be a gritty true crime tale. It was going to be light on its feet, fun, and hopefully funny. If we'd gone the other way, I think we would have pulled out of most of his scenes and just had there be some sort of stand-in for him who isn't him, who works for him or something. But because we did that, we only kind of worked these scenes in, and then that kind of impacted when Cage shows up in the script because we wanted to kind of space out these different comedy folks who play him coming in. But it also gave us the ability to have the fictional Nick Cage character show up throughout in a way that didn't feel like, ah, they're really avoiding the fact that the person the movie is about isn't in the movie. According to Alex, Cage was okay with this plan. He decided he didn't want to do it, but gave his blessing. To play the role of Cage, producers cast four people. The actors who play him are Rob Hubel and Missy Pyle and Dion Cole and Rob Corddry. The actors would play Cage in different scenes when the script called for Cage to make an appearance. To play the comic book thieves, Jimmy Tatro, Mike Castle, and Haley Magnus were cast. Tatro is probably best known now for his role on the ABC sitcom Home Economics. In the movie, Tatro's character, Brian, is a stereo installer who gets into Cage's home and notices the action number one. He convinces his friends to break in and grab the comic, which is just sitting on a coffee table. Alex started shooting the movie in Vancouver in the fall of 2016. And no, Vancouver wasn't intended to be a stand-in for Los Angeles. That was where the production could get the most out of its budget. So Cage, the movie Cage, had to relocate. It was literally based on where we were able to, because it would have made sense to do New Orleans. The tax cuts were, were like, okay, make it work in Seattle or Vancouver so we can shoot in Vancouver. It's like, okay, it's never going to really make sense, but we can just claim that he has a house here and we'll just go from there. And it mostly went off without a hitch. The leads had good chemistry, the script was funny, and the conceit of Cage being played by different performers was definitely going to get the movie some attention. But it was important that while the movie would have fun with Cage, it wouldn't make fun of Cage. Yeah, there was that, and there was like right before we started shooting too, there's a bunch of cold feet that like, this was too weird. And then I think once we did it, it worked out. I was like, oh, this is fun. And I think that's the most fun stuff in the movie because everyone knows him, everyone knows his thing and it's great and everyone likes it. And I think that's more fun, like more like, I guess, celebratory. When the Cage actors would come on set, Alex explained that he wasn't looking for a Cage impression, more of a Cage essence. All of the actors who played him 
every one of them was afraid of it when I first approached them to do it because it is such a weird ask. Like, you want to come to Vancouver for like a day and play Nick Cage? And every one of them I had to kind of walk through is like, we're not looking for a very authentic, accurate impression. We're not even looking for an impression at all. We just want people to kind of play what you think his vibe is, what his energy is in whatever way that means to you. And all four of them are recognizably Nick Cagey, but do it in very different ways, which I think is very cool. But they were all at first kind of like, what, what is what is this? Like, I, I, I'm not an impressionist. Be like, no, no, you don't have to be. Especially when it's like Missy Pyle coming up being like, you brought me up to play this man for this one scene like yeah okay i'll talk you through it and then everyone got it and they were all very fun after shooting fernie edited the film it was scored in today's streaming landscape it didn't seem like there would be much of an issue finding a home they all needed content especially during a pending pandemic when productions were being shut down left and right and then we kind of wrapped up the post. I had hoped for some reshoots and some other stuff that ended up falling apart, which probably should have been the first sign. But it, right at the end of that, there was a conversation I had had with some of the awesomeness people, and they were excited about it, and they were talking about where they are going to do it. And then I never talked to those people again because they all left the company. And I don't think I ever had another conversation with someone at the production company again. It's like we sent it in, not even really an acknowledgement of it, and then it just like literally disappeared and it went from being like this is really fun we'll get this out there we've got some plans we'll keep talking about it to we're all quitting we're all going to start our own companies and then just dead silence for at this point now five years your tax refund belongs to you not an identity thief over six billion dollars in tax refunds were flagged by the irs for possible identity theft in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. It's not as though Cage had ever had particularly good luck with Superman movies. At the height of his box office stature in the late 1990s, 
he agreed to play Superman, his first ever superhero role. He had and would be connected to other comic book projects like Constantine, which eventually went to Keanu Reeves. For the record, it's pronounced Constantine in the comics. And Hard Boiled, a pulp comic written by comics legend Frank Miller. But Superman was the big one. A beautiful freak, Cage said of the character. When Cage accepted the role in 1996, he was about to kick off an incredible run of action movie hits. Con Air, Face Off, The Rock. Those three movies combined made over half a billion dollars. He had transformed himself from an eccentric character actor who ate live cockroaches in Vampire's Kiss to a more refined version of Sylvester Stallone. And don't forget, this Superman was also an Oscar winner for Leaving Las Vegas. Cage's run in the 1990s was something to witness firsthand. It was an opportunity afforded to a select group of people. One of them was Marco Kiras, Cage's tenured stand-in. Not a stunt double. Marco doesn't do any jumping. You can't set Marco on fire. But when you need someone who looks like Cage to stand in Cage's place while the lighting is being set up, that's who you'd call. For years, Marco had often been told he looked a lot like Cage. Yes. Yeah, often. But different people. They said Cage and Alec Baldwin. Depends on how heavy I was getting. Joe Montagna, Nick Cage, you know, just depended on my look, my attire. But Marco didn't really want the job at first. After being in Los Angeles for a few years and doing the waiter thing, sure, he recognized an opportunity. It was a chance to double for Cage in the 1994 heist comedy Trapped in Paradise. But the gig was in the winter in Toronto, the coldest winter in years. And so I said, no. I said, thank you so much. I've never done the job, but I decline. And they all got pissed off at me because I was the perfect fit for Nick Cage, and they convinced me to do the job, so I actually then took the job. It came with perks right off the top. I didn't know any different, to tell you the truth. But that's where it all happened. So I was a real needed fit. I had all the union work, and I had film experience, but not standing experience. So to me, it was a bit of a degrading position, but I realized it was a really necessary position. So when I started to work in this film, within a month, he was very interested in me and he thought I was very good. And basically I followed the rules and I did the right stuff. And he asked me to go on tour with him as a stand-in. And I did. I had nothing else going on in life. It was very unique to be in a position where Nick Cage was the biggest star in the world. And I was the biggest star stand-in in the world. And I didn't really know it or appreciate it because we are working so many films and in so many locations that our heads were just constantly in the work. Whatever Marco might have felt about the job before, it turned out to be a pretty good deal. There were perks. Cage didn't just buy stuff for himself, he bought stuff for everyone around him. Yeah, it was. It was definitely travel because obviously I did all those films and traveled, and they put you up, they give you hotels, they give you a rent-a-car, they give you per diems, you're on a contract. It was a real perky package, a lot of gifts from Cage. That guy showers you with gifts. The guy is the biggest giver I had ever met in my life, let alone in Hollywood. Oh my God, everything, anything from designer suits to jackets to luggage to expensive bottles of wine and scotch and right down to a Rolex watch. I mean, just endless gifts, just, Gifts you never expect in your lifetime in the, in the position that I had. And it wasn't only me, it was everybody. 
So we all benefited because of his generosity. He's just a person who's beyond thankful. So Cage and Marco was in a prime position in the 90s as Warner Brothers was gearing up to make a new Superman movie. The studio hadn't made one since Superman IV, The Quest for Peace in 1987, which was Christopher Reeve's last outing as the character. Since then, it had been a parade of scripts and pitches, which ranged from Superman rescuing the tiny bottle city of Kandor to fighting Brainiac, one of his most famous comic book villains. There was even a brief announcement of a Superman V starring Reeve, but it never got beyond the talking stages. Reeve suffered from a catastrophic horse riding accident in 1995 that left him paralyzed from the neck down. Warner had been focused on their Batman franchise, which had been ushered to the screen by a producer and Batman superfan named Michael Uslan. He steered the production away from ideas like Bill Murray as Batman and straight to Tim Burton. Burton had developed a reputation for making movies about outcasts like Beetlejuice and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Burton made Batman a huge hit in 1989, and then he made a sequel in 1992, Batman Returns. A third Batman movie, Batman Forever, was released in 1995 without Burton. Warner obviously saw potential in their comic book slate. The next move was to bring back Superman. Now, the Man of Steel had been popping up. There was a syndicated Superboy series in the early 1990s, which was devoted to the character's college life. There was also Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, an ABC hit about a more domestic Clark Kent that starred Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher. But Warner had always been apprehensive about investing a lot of money on a major new Superman movie. You had to treat Superman with kid gloves. He was more than just the first superhero. He was, in their eyes, a commodity. And at the time, putting someone in tights with sincerity was always cause for concern. Even Batman went from a gritty Michael Keaton to Val Kilmer joking about taking the Batmobile to drive throughs Was anyone going to buy the Big Blue Boy Scout in the grunge era? The involvement of Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage seemed to convince them. Burton had imagined Batman as a dark hero, absolving the character from the pop art incarnation of the 1960s Adam West television series. If he could do it for Batman, who was much maligned by then, he could certainly do it for Superman. Burton was the director Cage wanted. They agreed that Superman would be an outsider, an element that hadn't really been explored on film. How would you feel if you were the most powerful being on the planet? Would you feel emboldened or ostracized? Cage was excited by this. He felt Superman was a way of telling kids it was okay to be different. He felt like a character this big and this well-known had a direct line to children, and he wanted a positive message to be delivered to them. He invited Burton over to his house for a brainstorming session, while a screenwriter named Wesley Strick took copious notes. Cage liked talking about it. 
the word was, you know, he really wanted to do it. It was a different take on Superman. He did ask me if I met the director, if I knew Tim Burton. And to my surprise, he didn't know Tim Burton because he's also from Los Angeles. And I said, yes, I've met him and I've worked with him. I said, you're going to love this guy. He's just brilliant. While it would be something different, it would still be a major blockbuster. In Superman Lives, Superman would have to deal with both Lex Luthor and Brainiac, who develop a relentless monster named Doomsday that can match the hero's brawn. After seemingly dying, Superman is resurrected and goes on to conquer his enemies and, hopefully, the box office. There would be Happy Meal toys and sequels and maybe even a team-up with Batman. Cage wasn't the only big attraction either. Burton wanted Jim Carrey to play Brainiac. Sandra Bullock was considered for Lois Lane. And Chris Rock was cast as Jimmy Olsen. So Warner began writing checks. A lot of checks. Millions were spent on sets, on script rewrites, on costuming. Location experts started scouting Pittsburgh to stand in for Metropolis. Cage threw himself into the role. For one thing, he bought a copy of Action Comics number one, maybe to have a physical connection with the history of the character. It was one thing to steep yourself in comic book mythology, and another to become a part of it. But that's what he was doing, becoming a new version of a hero he had long admired. It was an intriguing blend of Americana and Cage's surrealist approach to acting. Who wouldn't want to see this film? Then it was time for Cage to go in for a costume fitting. So did his body double, Marco Curis. We know what happened, but Marco says he would have lost weight. Yeah, I would have lost the weight 100%. The footage is out there online. You can probably find it, though of course we can't endorse the unauthorized distribution of such material. But when you see it, you immediately notice how wonderstruck Cage is by being in the iconic costume. It's a little stiff, all this molded rubber, and it needs professional cinematography, not the camcorder someone is using to record the fitting. But how the costume looks isn't really what's important. Cage is looking at himself in a mirror as though a boyhood dream were coming true. He had come so far from childhood when he once dressed as Batman for Halloween but then lost the cape, so he had to use a green plaid blanket instead. You can imagine that little boy not quite believing what's happening now. But that sense of wonder couldn't last. Burton and Cage worked on the Superman movie for roughly a year. The first sign of trouble came when Warner realized Cage was due to start shooting a film called Snake Eyes for director Brian De Palma in October 1997. The start of that film overlapped with the shooting schedule for Superman Lives, which turned into a territorial tug-of-war for Cage's services. Neither studio wanted to back down. Both believed they had the right to retain Cage. When that was resolved, Superman Lives appeared ready for takeoff. But as they often did, executives at Warner Brothers started to second-guess their decision. Was Burton really the right person to reinvent Superman? His aesthetic worked beautifully for Batman, who fit perfectly into Burton's dark and gothic visions. But Superman was something else entirely, 
a bright, optimistic hero. They started to worry Superman was about to get weird and expensive. And Cage didn't exactly convince them otherwise. He wanted to play Superman as an outcast, a lost soul. Calling him a beautiful freak probably didn't make the Happy Meal people too confident. Warner had to make a decision, and quickly. In the end, they decided to pull the plug on Burton and Cage. A Warner executive named Bill Gerber had to call Cage's manager, Jerry Harrington. The executive said it was one of the most uncomfortable calls he had ever had to make in the business. Superman Lives was dead. The only footage of Nicolas Cage as Superman would be some costume tests shot on VHS. According to Marco, Cage was devastated. I think it would have been great. I think it was very disappointed that it didn't happen. I think it's one of the things that he wanted to do forever, and now he can't come back to it because he's a different age group, and, you know, it's not going to work. Marco worked with Cage for a few more years, and then the two had a bit of a falling out. Marco isn't too eager to discuss details, but something happened in South Africa where Cage was shooting a film. Some events happened while we were in South Africa, and when we got back, he had already dismissed a couple of key entourage members, and when we got back, three or four of us were then let go at the same time. So nobody really knows exactly what happened because it wasn't mentioned. It was only mentioned through his producer. And it was a bitter moment that it just ended. Not that we weren't tired and everybody was working and overworked at this time, but it was kind of like a blow to us that it all just kind of ended with one phone call. And not just for me, but for a few of us. Just one other thing. Marco, did you, uh... No, no, no. I've never seen the comics, other than what was reported in the news or a picture of them somewhere. I've never actually seen them, but that's uh, that's a good spin there. Marco isn't sure who's responsible for taking the books, but he thinks it's certainly conceivable it was an inside job. And the idea of that bums him out because Cage was a good boss. They don't understand his generosity. They don't understand his commitment to the people who work for him. So if anybody steals from him, it's just you've crippled him. It's like a little child. Why would you steal from somebody who gives you so much? Marco left the film industry and went into real estate, where he's done well. Cage, meanwhile, wouldn't get a chance to play a comic book character until 2007, when he starred as Johnny Blaze in Ghost Rider. There was one upside, though. Cage's Superman deal was reported to be pay or play, meaning he got paid even if the movie never got made. He took home $4 million, all for trying on a suit. At least he could buy some more comics. Burton got paid too. So did the countless screenwriters who'd been working on the movie since 1993. Warner had sunk tens of millions into a new Superman film and had nothing to show for it. So maybe a movie not about Superman, but about Cage being a fan of Superman would be different, right? Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a Chill Mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on Chill Mattresses and get two free pillows iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Alex Fernie shot the action number one movie in the fall of 2016 and had it pretty much done in 2017. And while it probably wasn't due for a major theatrical rollout, he was pretty sure it would wind up in his Netflix queue. That had been kind of my impression, what had been told to me was the idea was awesomeness, the production company, I think a good relationship like Netflix and some other places and be like, we're probably going to make this for streaming. We'll see if there's a distributor who wants to do it. Maybe we'll do like some festivals and then go to streaming, which is great. It's a low budget thing. I actually think it could have found a home there. People could have discovered it. But as the months went by, no one at Awesomeness was reaching out to offer a production update. Fernie asked about it, but never got a response. It was not very awesome. Literally no one knows or has any good answers. It just kind of like went away because we tried be like, well, I bet we could get some fun like festivals to do it. Feels like it'd be fun for that. Couldn't get that to happen. My guess as to what happened, and this is 100% conjecture on my part, is around that time, Awesomeness also started. I feel like they kind of like focused in on a certain demographic and a certain approach that this movie didn't fit with. They didn't know what to do with it, so they just kind of put it away. That's my best guess. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Awesomeness moved in a different direction. But that doesn't explain that for years, Fernie couldn't even get a copy of his own film from the company. They seemed reluctant to acknowledge it even existed. I couldn't even get a copy of it for myself to see, which was insane. And that's with like executive producers trying to get it that they couldn't get it. We probably shouldn't say if we were among those who caught a screening of this elusive movie. But if we were, hypothetically, we suppose it might involve Cage being very irate that his copy of Action Comics number one has been stolen. And unlike the real Cage, who was upset but somewhat resigned to his fate, this version of Cage 
decides to enlist the services of an assassin to hunt down the thieves. The movie Cage appears in a few scenes. As we discussed, every time he shows up, he's played by a different actor. There's no in-movie explanation for this. It's kind of like that Bob Dylan movie where Dylan was played by everyone from Kate Blanchett to Christian Bale. It's a little surrealist as a nod to the very surrealist actor they're portraying. The movie culminates in a showdown at a comic convention. And even though the film isn't circulating, it still feels in poor form to spoil it. So we'll just say it's, well, it's fine. It's not an affront to humanity. It's a modestly budgeted movie that dips along. That's what's so weird is there's no one in it who has become problematic since, and you would think that there would be places it could go to at least make them some money, but they would rather just bury it. And I get, also, I know this sounds like it's like, oh, it's probably so bad that they're burying, because that's what I would assume. I don't think it's perfect, and I don't think I hit a home run on it, but I think it by and large works, and that's one of the things that surprises me is that it just disappeared. So we reached out to Peter Principato, the owner of Artists First, the management and production company that represents Alex along with the writers, Thomas Lennon and Robert Ben Garant. Artists First also helped produce the movie. Peter told us in an email that he simply doesn't know, that he wishes he could answer the question. He went on to say that awesomeness controls the movie and there's been some executive turnover. And as a result, the release of the film has gotten completely lost. So we went to awesomeness. We reached out to a number of executives. The question was pretty straightforward. You made a movie and own the rights to it. So why not release it? Most of them wouldn't respond, but one awesomeness executive did. In an email, he said, there were no plans for action number one right now. Well, we kind of established that, but okay. So we started thinking about why else films get shelved. In many cases, it comes down to rights issues. With action number one, there are two potentially problematic elements at play. The first is that comic. Now, any movie character can talk about Superman all they like, or Madonna, or Star Wars. But showing it? The viewer gets fleeting glimpses of Action Comics number one in scenes from the movie. And that comic and Superman himself are the intellectual property of Warner Brothers, which owns DC Comics. His image belongs to them. So could Warner have raised an issue? Alex doesn't think so. It was the same thing because the props we used were repros that DC at some point had put out. Obviously, we weren't waving around real, insanely expensive prices comics, but they were real repros of that. We didn't make them. And that, again, is what kind of allowed legal to let us do it. If you show Superman and you're not trying to make an off-brand Superman movie, it should be fine, unless it's not. That's their fear, their deep fear of being sued down the line. So in this case, they're like, we have a great case to be made of fair use because we're using the actual thing. We're not disparaging anything, so we can just kind of go for it. But maybe that was the issue. And the second complication might be more relevant. That complication being Nicolas Cage. While Cage did give his blessing, according to Alex, there are other issues at play. Depending on how he gave that permission, 
Cage could have had second thoughts, and could have had second thoughts just as he was gearing up to play himself in the unbearable weight of massive talent. The idea of two meta Nicolas Cage comedies may have started to seem less appealing to the man who is now dealing with multiple fictional versions of himself. We got a pretty good sense of all this from David Heinrich. David is an entertainment lawyer who deals with clearances, or making sure a movie or television production isn't shooting itself in the foot by depicting a real person or someone else's intellectual property. Here's David. So with a film like this, Warner Brothers is tied to the DC universe. DC, as an entity on their own, have their own stake in Superman and Action Number 1, Nicolas Cage, his personal estate, and then any of the, the film companies that are working with him currently and that need him to be a recognizable and lovable name for their marketing purposes. It's just the who's who, and any one of them could be a roadblock, and several of them in conjunction. If there were several of these issues all together, and I was representing Netflix or somebody, my recommendation would probably just to be like, now forget it. Like, it's probably not worth it. People in the public eye have something known as publicity rights. It means that taking someone like Cage and portraying them as, say, a murderous psychopath in a movie could conceivably create some problems for filmmakers that wouldn't exist with a nonfiction article or documentary or a podcast. It's also not a documentary. It's not a nonfiction film. This is a fictionalized account. Um, you have a broader leeway. The fact that Action Number One was a modestly budgeted movie may have also played a part. And if the movie is like a B minus comedy, right? Mm. If you're not going to be making 28 million on opening weekend, then why do you want to have a six million dollar legal fight? Because like, when it comes to the accounting, it doesn't matter if it's going to make more money than it loses in court. Like the opportunity cost on, well, would the seven million we spent on legal fees be better just getting Jason Momoa to show up in the next whatever, right? So here's one possible outcome. Action number one is written, shot, and edited. And then Awesomeness goes in search of a distributor. And the distributor realizes that the cost of insuring this movie, given the potential legal exposure for depicting a fictional and violent cage, and an illustration of Superman simply isn't worth the trouble. So if the film comes out and Nicolas Cage is like a madman ordering hit squads to kill somebody over a comic book, comedy is subjective and accountants and legal teams are necessarily pessimists who <laughs> will always be thinking about the worst case scenario. It's without like a written sign off from Mr. Cage saying, yeah, no, I'm totally fine with this. If it's going to be decided by his authorized representatives, it's essentially our job to err on the side of caution. And so if that's what happened, it's, it's reasonable to assume that they put the brakes on. So why wouldn't Awesomeness figure all of this out before shooting? It could be that they took a shoot-first-ask-questions-later approach. According to David, it wouldn't be the first time a major production put off clearances until the shooting was completed. Or it could be Cage wanted his unbearably massive talent to not have a competing meta project. One kind of fake Cage, like Marco, is okay. But this one, maybe not. 
A couple of years ago, Alex finally managed to get a copy of his movie. He may have held a super exclusive online screening for a handful of friends, just so it could have some kind of audience. Every now and then I still try to nudge it along and see if they can do something with it. We, uh, you know, I've done a hypothetical underground streaming of it once on Twitch for some people. It's one of those things I think is, is fun and silly and I think if people had found it, it'd been like, yeah, I'll watch this, this is fun. Instead of sitting on a drive on some shelf like the Lost Ark of the Covenant at some Culver City office. Alex likes the movie he made. He's still in the dark about why other people can't see it. And he's not sure Cage has seen it either but he still has an idea for an end credit scene. There was one we couldn't even get close to, although I think we should have tried harder. I desperately wanted there to be a button in the movie, and we even left space for it in case it somehow came together at the very, very end as a, a credit sting with one more Nick Cage. And in my dream world, I really wanted it to be Travolta as a face-off sort of thing at the end, and it just didn't come together. But I think that would have been fun. So maybe we'll never see a dramatic reenactment of the day Nicolas Cage found his comics missing. Or a comedic one, for that matter. But as upset as Nicolas Cage was when it happened, time seems to heal all comic heist-related wounds. There probably came a time when he accepted that his copy of the comic was gone forever. To write a movie scene where someone held the comic aloft in their hand and announced to the world that they had found it would seem unbelievable. Except that's exactly what happened. But before we get there, we need to take a step back to where all of this began. Not with Cage, but with Superman and his creators. Back to a real crime that would leave a father dead and a son searching to make sense of it all. To understand what Nick Cage lost, we're going back to where it all started where the Man of Steel's co-creator was robbed of his youth and changed pop culture forever. That's next on Stealing Superman. Oh, sorry, almost forgot to ask Alex. I did not take the comic. Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson, Sound design, scoring, and mixing by Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Jonathan Washington. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson, with production support from Lulu Phillip. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're enjoying this show, check out Haleywood and Noble Blood, and give us a nice review. We'll see you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.